Welcome to Troubleshooting Innovation, a commercial baking podcast. I'm your host, Joni Spencer, Editor-in-Chief for Commercial Baking, and I'm speaking with Stephen Hallam, Brand Ambassador for Dickinson & Morris and Chair of Judges for the Tip Tree World Bread Awards, which will take place at IBIE 2022, September 18th through 21st in Las Vegas. This season, we are exploring the principles of artisan bread baking that can and should be incorporated into commercial bread production. This episode is focused on mixing and how it can impact the artisan process, especially on a commercial scale. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for joining me. Hi there, Joni. So this is another really good topic that we're going to dive into this week. And we're taking a step back from what we discussed last week, which was time and temperature. And we're going to focus on mixing. And it's so important because if you get the mix wrong, you might not know until bread comes out of the oven. So let's first talk about what are the key elements of properly mixing an artisan dough? I, I don't think this is something you can necessarily is bespoke to an artisan dough or artisan bakers. For any baker, uh, before we start mixing, you got your ingredients. So you need to make sure that you've weighed down the ingredients according to the recipe as they should be. Because remember, baking is a science. Uh, there's a balance there. A certain percentage of whatever it is you're putting in to achieve the result you want. So the weighing of ingredients shouldn't be taken lightly and is a responsibility not really to be dumbed down. You know, it is very important that because if it's weighed down wrong, then uh, you're not going to get the right result to start with. I think that's worth highlighting. The biggest ingredient when it comes to making the dough is going to be the flour usually. And we're very dependent as bakers of receiving a consistent flour from the miller or wherever we buy our flour from. More often than not, if something is not as it should be, either with the dough or the resultant bread, quite often the last person that we ring up to say has something gone wrong is your flour supplier, is the miller. On the other hand, it should sometimes be the first because we expect three, six, five days a year, 52 weeks a year, that we're getting a consistent supply of flour. But remember the, the miller's task, in, uh, and we t we've touched on this in an earlier episode, of producing a consistent flour when he's got materials and grains grown every year in different conditions can be quite challenging. He has the tools at his hands with all his equipment, his Brabender farinographs, his alveographs, his extensographs, all these bits of kit to uh, ensure that the flour he's producing has the correct, say, water absorption, starch content, and damage starch content, and all of that. So we have harped on a little bit about that because we assume all that is consistent. And if we're consistent in what we do in the mixing process and the dough isn't right then perhaps the miller is the first port of call who you should be ringing to say, is something wrong with the flour? Because sometimes it can be. And typically it's when it's a change of harvest. So we're moving on from the old wheat onto the wheat from the new harvest. 
And millers won't stream it all in 100% new wheat in one go. They'll do it gradually. But sometimes that can create a huge effect. And the classic one is on water absorption. So when we're mixing up, there'll be a recipe for your dough and it calls for uh, whatever percentage of water. And that can vary. It can vary not just for reasons I've just explained, but also where the flour has been stored and how old the flour is. The purpose of mixing is clearly that we're adding water to the flour. It's going to make a dough and the mixing action is developing the proteins that are in there to form this um, mass called gluten. So you've, you've got these three proteins in wheat flour, gluten and gliadin, globulin. They come together to form this fairly sticky, indigestible uh, product called gluten. And the action of mixing is to stretch it, is to develop it. And the dough becomes elastic and extensible. And those two qualities of elasticity and extensibility is all down to the gluten and developing the gluten correctly. And if you don't develop it enough, that could be because you either haven't mixed enough or you haven't added sufficient water, then you'll end up with a very, what bakers describe as a tight dough. And it could well tear in the process of dividing it and molding it into whatever shape you need. And when it comes to its final proof, it won't be quite as free and silky as you'd expect. So when the dough goes in the oven, you won't get the rise and that oven spring that we might like to see, again, depending on the sort of loaf we're making. So coming back to the actual mixing, the the way in which or or the type of machine or the way in which the dough is mixed could alter the uh, how much water is absorbed by the flour. But the flour itself will have an absorption rate, which is an optimum amount of water that that flour, the protein and the starch in the flour will absorb. And if you put too much in, the dough will be, in inverted commas, waterlogged. There was a danger of this many, many years ago in the days when sandwich bread was first prevalent here in the UK because the dough was being put into a tin that's got a bottom and four sides. There was a belief that you could put more water in the dough because the tin will hold the dough up. But the sort of bread that was coming out was more like cotton wool. It didn't have any structure to it. It was very pappy, etc. Now, that was a classic example of too much water. If a dough is not mixed sufficiently, then the gluten won't be developed enough and you will get some poor looking loaves, poor appearance in particular. During the proving process, it could fall apart because it's so tight, just not mixed enough. So is every dough the same? Not necessarily. We come back to what I started with is you've got to assume that you're getting consistent flour and that it's been weighed correctly or the ingredients have been weighed down correctly. Crucial, critical points, really. Assuming that is the case, there's times when the dough may just take a little bit more water because it needs it, not because you're trying to make it stand up on end, as it were. You're trying to, because water is considered to be the least expensive ingredient in the dough. And the knowledge of the dough maker is quite crucial here. Um, The person on the machine, they can determine 
I wouldn't say that there's an aroma, there's a smell, but there is a visual side. When you're doing this uh, regularly and all the time, um, you do see whether something is not right, whether it needs more water, it needs less. If it needs less water, is that because it's not being weighed properly or is it because there's something wrong with the flower? At that point, you might not know. So, yeah, that's this crucial part of mixing. To, to just put everything in a machine and press a button and say, it's all right. There needs to be lots of control points before that to ensure that it's consistent. In a big commercial operation, if you've got a dough that is particularly sticky because it's got too much water in it, which could mean you've not got put enough flour or the flour is not as it should be, that could cause umpteen issues when the dough is divided and then when it's on intermediate proof in improving baskets, etc., because it could stick to everything. And <laughs> baker's answer can some be can sometimes be to sort of throw lots of flour on it, etc. All that then introduces other problems in that it won't mould properly, you get skinning, you get holes in the final bread, etc. So um there's a number of bottles on the wall, dominoes here. You just got to get in the right order. But the personal actually mixing is quite crucial. Absolutely. So listen, I'm going to tell you a story that is probably going to make you scream as, a, as an artisan baker. And I'll preface it with, I was not in a bread bakery, but oh gosh, it was probably seven or eight years ago, I was in a bakery that was very close to being what they call a lights out bakery. And they told me, as long as we have someone here to turn on the mixer, this entire line can run without anybody. As long as some one person's here to turn on the mixer. That's a shame really, isn't it? That, that's something that's probably run by an accountant, not a baker. There's not a lot of passion in that, is there? And I feel like it exemplifies the two schools of thought that are prevalent in our industry right now because we are in such a shortage of not only labor, but also bakers. I hear so much, we don't have any more dough heads, as they call them. That's what they call them here in the States is dough heads, the ones that can look at or touch the dough and know that there's a problem and have thoughts on how to solve that problem. And so I think in one direction, it's total automation is the key to solving that. And then the other direction is we cannot just populate the industry with operators. We need to teach them the process and we need to teach them what is happening when they turn on the mixer. And I like the term that you used, dough maker that they're not a mixer operator, they're a dough maker. Let's take a break from this episode of Troubleshooting Innovation to talk about Commercial Baking's partnership with the International Baking Industry Exposition. As IBIE's gold media partner, Commercial Baking has provided all new media products to help attendees and exhibitors get the most from this year's show. Check out our IBIE monthly newsletter, IBIE Show Guide Digital Edition, and our IBIE booth trailers by visiting commercialbaking.com. And don't forget to come see us at IBIE booth 3125 in the West Hall of the Las Vegas Convention Center. We'll see you at IBIE. 
So I talked to another baker recently who gave me the analogy of, of customer service. So they are teaching their line workers that the person at the mixer is serving the person at the makeup line. So the person at the makeup line is, is the mixer's customer and they have to make sure that they're getting the dough ready for it to be properly processed down the line. So then the oven is the makeup operator's customer and so on and so on. So I am curious as to your thoughts on how you teach someone, like what are the fundamentals that a person new to the industry needs to know if they are put at the mixer, at the mixing station, what do they need to look out for? What happens next after they push that button? I um, I think it's deeper than that, actually, because the science behind making a loaf of bread is not rocket science. There is a science there. It's the same science today as it was 20 years ago and will be 20 years' time. This is in, in terms of a fermentation, all the things we're talking about, um, bread making with fermentation, the materials, Usually, the more informed people are, the more they fall in love with it, the more passionate they become, and the more caring they become. So if there is a dearth, a lack of colleges or places of education where people can go to learn this, then I would suggest the onus is on the industry uh, and businesses themselves to be putting X amount of their budget, whatever it is, but making it part of their day-to-day business for whether it be with academies or I don't know what it might be, an amount of time given online. Because all this could be learnt online initially, the science. How big operation could put aside a room that they could call the Baking Academy or whatever the name of the company it is and there's some consoles in there or people could do it at home, online. We have to do it per se for health and safety. We have to do it for food safety, don't we? Well, we certainly do in this country. You know, you can't work in a bakery unless you've got your basic food hygiene certificates. So that same principle could be applied to bakery knowledge. Each colleague, each member of staff, each employee then becomes an ambassador of the company, if they're learning more about what they're doing, they will be the better for it. And that will show in what they do. And the company will be the better for it as well. It's too easy to forget just how obliging and how helpful people will be if they're asked or they're given the tools to to help them with what they're doing. If the end game is always looking at the bottom right-hand corner of the profit and loss account, I, th- I think we're harping onto something that's very towards something that's very um, emotional for me because I firmly believe in it, and 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 that's the people. Quality in a business uh, is is not just about. I'm talking bakery business here. It's not just about the products and the materials that ingredients that those products are made from. It's about the people, the respect those people are given, the the uh, environment in which they work the cleanliness of the bakeries, the vehicles, the vans, the whole DNA of the business really should be about quality being a way of life. The more opportunity you give to people, your colleagues, to improve the knowledge of what they're doing, 
the greater the business will be for it and moving forward. It's not hard to teach people this science of baking. Everybody will be a winner, including the customers who will end up paying for it because they'll be buying more. The idea that the dough maker passing it on, you know, he's the next person in the process is the customer is great, but that it sounds a bit clinical to me. You know, they, they're all working for the one company. It shouldn't need an approach like that. If the dough maker will know whether the dough is right or not, he will get a little bit upset if the other man burns everything. And rightly so. They're all one team, aren't they? So we come back to that when you're working as a team. It's so important. It all comes down to giving people the tools to enable them to do their job better. And and uh, it's called training, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and that's something that we're going to get into much deeper in a couple of weeks in talking about training and culture and incorporating that into the commercial side of artisan bread making. Yes. When coming back to um, mixing which is what this uh, episode is sort of about. Yes, I, I think I've um, made my thoughts fairly clear there on, on the importance of training and knowledge throughout all the team in the bakery. If the dough isn't right when it's made, it won't get rectified further down the line, whatever process in, in, in dividing, moulding, proving, baking. It, it needs to start right. We talk about stress on the dough. Making it right includes giving it enough time to relax as well. Depending on what we're making, that could take more time, or it might be a dough that we're making that needs to be processed swiftly, like rolls, really. You know, if you're making some bread rolls, generally you, you want to get on and get those processed because you're dividing them up into little small rolls, they need moulding, etc., etc. You, you've given, at the mixing stage, you've put quite a lot of uh, input into the dough. You've developed that protein in there you're going to rest it going to divide it molding it will create the tension in there so you will end up with some nice bold shapes and, and they hold their shapes it also gives a, a better crumb in the final loaf uh, again this is dependent if, if you're just doing a sourdough and you just focaccia or something like that but it, it starts with making the dough right when you're mixing a dough, you don't have to have something super duper that's going to mix it in five minutes. You could have something that takes time and it's slow and it's slowly mixing the dough as, as uh, allowing the protein to absorb all the water because that takes time. I mean, there's a school of thought, isn't there, that the first 30 minutes you don't mix a dough at all. It just allows the water to be absorbed by the uh, protein and the starch in there. All you do is just bring it together and walk away and leave it and then come back to it and then mix it because it's given it time to fully hydrate before you start developing the protein. Added to that, there's another process whereby you'd hold your salt back. Salt being as stringent as it is, the dough is a little bit looser, it's freer before you add the salt. In actual fact, if, you, if you've got quite a soft dough, when you add the salt, it's quite visible to see how it tightens the dough up. That's the effect of the salt on the protein. It's not quite so soft. I, th I think a, any artisan baker that is looking, say, to scale up or, or move up or, or move from doing what they're doing, a little benchtop mixer to a bigger mixer, etc., should be mindful, I think, of 
what do they want to use the machine for? Is it just bread making? Or are they going to be making cakes on there? You know, if you're going to buy a spiral mixer, as an example, that's principally for doughs. You're not be making any cake backers on that. So it's just to take advice from equipment manufacturers to ensure that what they're buying suits the purpose. Because there are some machines, planetary mixer that you can use different attachments on, be it a dough hook, a beater, a whisk, would cover everything in an all-round bakery, from cake making to sponge to batters to dough making. But if the focus is on dough making, a spiral mixer is considered very efficient in its mixing action. Then there are other schools of thought that don't want to mix a dough quite as quickly uh, as a spiral mixer would mix a dough. Um, we'll just have a single arm mixer where the turning of the arm rotates the bowl. It's a very much slower process. And as we've previously discussed, speed isn't always best, is it? You know, slowing the job down. I think it's having a clear mind of where you're going, what you want to use the machine for, the space available, and, and um, matched with the budget, I would imagine, as well. I can remember in my father's bakery, we mixed all our doughs on a planetary mixer because that's what we had. And then he moved to a spiral mixer and the difference in the doughs was unbelievable. We had a much silkier crumb. It developed the protein much better, much more extensible and elastic, the doughs. We had much softer bread rolls after they'd been baked. And this was all down to better mixing because it was uh, more efficient not so much in terms of time but in the actual stretching of the dough as it was mixing which um, if you're feeling aggrieved and you're at home and want to go and make some bread don't you because you'll take it all out on the dough and generally you'll never make such good bread at home if, if you've got a little bit of anger in yourself because you're taking it out of the dough uh, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek and joking. I don't advise everybody to go and do it, but you, you, I think you can see the principle in that. But uh, I can't think of a better place than IBIE for any aspiring artisan baker to get the advice of what he needs, uh, of what he should get. Yes, there is going to be a smorgasbord of mixing technology at IBIE. Yeah, they're all about the same thing, aren't they? Producing good bread which can only be a good thing for the industry. When we think about, you, you touched on it a few times a little bit, thinking about when the mixing is done right, what does that do not only for making the whole process better and more efficient, but also what does that finished product look like when the mixing is done right? The finished product, it'll have a better appearance, the softness and resilience of the crumb will be better. So you, your softness, you can feel it. So when you've cut into the loaf and say so you stroke the surface of the loaf, it feels soft. It doesn't feel as if it could take more water. Um, it doesn't feel waterlogged. It just feels silky and smooth. Resilience is when on the cut surface of a loaf, if you pressed your fingers, your, your forefingers, not your thumb, but the ends of your forefingers, into the crumb of the loaf, it will spring back. You press it down, not vehemently or hard, but you gently press down and let go and it comes back. So that's resilience. If you haven't mixed correctly to optimum effect, 
developing the protein, the right water absorption, you won't get that. It will have enabled you to have molded the dough so you've got really tight tension in your dough shape. And that will show on the appearance of the loaf. You know, it will stand out from the other side of the room, you know, something that's, that's right. The actual texture, uh, the crumb texture, it won't be too dry or crumbly. It won't be cohesive. It'll, it'll be just be just right. Not too sticky, not too moist. If you were looking at something like ciabatta or baguette, then yes, it's going to be slightly chewy. It'll have a, an open and more porous feel to it. Your taste and flavour aren't necessarily going to be affected by the mixing. That, that would be affected by your process. You know, your flavour is coming from the acidity. And that's influenced by the type of flour, the length of fermentation, you know, the salt and all of that. But it's the appearance, the, the softness of the resilience, the texture of the crumb that, that's most prevalent from correct mixing. All right. Well, Stephen, this has been so enlightening. I've, I've loved taking 30 minutes or so to talk specifically about how mixing impacts the artisan bread baking process. This has been so interesting. And next week, we are going to talk about the most important aspects of working with machines in artisan bread making, because it's the real factor in modern bread baking. And I think some of the entries in the Tip Tree World Bread Awards are products that were made with machines. And so I think you have a lot to offer in that. And I'm excited to really pick your brain on those key factors that bakers need to consider when they're working with automation to make artisan bread products. So I'm excited for next week. Me too. I would doubt there's any baker, artisan or large-scale commercial that, that aren't using some form of machinery. In this day and age, it is almost a, a way of life. So I look forward to it. I do as well. Well, once again, Stephen, thanks for your time and your insight and expertise. This has been wonderful. So I will talk to you about machines and automation next week. Thanks for listening to Troubleshooting Innovation, a commercial baking podcast. We are excited to join the industry in person as an IBIE Gold Media Partner. Be sure to check out our IBIE monthly newsletter, IBIE Show Guide Digital Edition, and our IBIE booth trailers, all available at commercialbaking.com. Be on the lookout for exclusive digital content live from the show, and don't forget to visit us at booth 3125 in the West Hall. We'll see you in Las Vegas.